Hey, we love Burger King grilled dogs. They're made with 100% beef, and they're 100%. Mm. They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel LaRue, your host, and so happy to be with us for this episode. I'd wanted to do a post-trade deadline recap, and I had already made a deal with Nate Duncan of Basketball Insiders to do it, but we were both super excited that the deadline actually got exciting. It was wild, it was crazy, and there were a lot of things to get through. So when Nate and I talked about how we wanted to do it, we started on the smaller side with you know the Sessions Miller trade and worked our way up to the bigger moves like the Goran Dragic trade and we did it team by team so we talked a little bit about who went in who went out and then what we think that means for that team so conversation runs about an hour 15 minutes I love doing it so happy to have Nate on and I hope you enjoy it as well thanks so much for coming on yeah, what a wild day. I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, especially the way that it kicked in at the end. I mean, we'll get to those trades a little bit later on because we're starting with the low impact, but the last little spurt was absolutely wild. Yeah, no, it was it was ridiculous. Like, I took my lunch hour uh, from work just for, like, that purpose, and it was definitely probably the greatest hour in the history of Twitter as, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it was definitely up there. So we're going to start, as I said, with some of the lower impact stuff, but still matters. And the first trade, the first two teams we're going to go through, it makes sense because they traded with one another, and that's Sacramento traded Ramon Sessions for to the Washington Wizards for Andre Miller. How do you see that for both teams? I like it for the Kings to get rid of the $2.1 million they owed to Sessions next year. Sessions is a guy who has been terrible this year. I thought, actually... It was possible he could be almost as good as Darren Collison was, but clearly didn't work out. But he's only 28, and maybe he'll do a little better on the Wizards with more talent around him. Uh, I, mean, I don't think he's quite this bad as, he, as he's been this year. And, you know, the Kings get a sop to George Carl and, and get Andre Miller. Uh, they pay more money this year and save $2 million for next year, and that actually could matter in terms of the type of contract that they can offer to a potential free agent, especially if they potentially offload more salary over the summer. I agree with all that. And one thing I had, I, I talked about it on Twitter, actually, but I was thinking about the idea of if Jarrett Jack could be involved in this. If you were Washington, would you rather had him than Sessions with considering the contracts involved? I don't think so. I mean, Washington is not going to have... Does, does Jack have anything guaranteed for 2016? I don't. Th- I think it's a very small one if he does. Yeah, because they don't want to take any money for uh, 2016. That's true. That's a good point. But yeah, I mean, and, and he's a little cheaper. Jack Jack is pretty expensive, and, and I don't think any of these guys really help Washington that much. Like, if I would love 
if I were them, to just have a kind of caretaker guy who can shoot some threes as my backup point guard, mm-hmm. uh, since they they struggle for spacing, and you kind of then you can kind of run things through a little bit more instead. But that's not the type of guy they've really have had over the last three years or so. But it is kind of funny to watch them play backup point guard roulette. First, it was the biannual on Eric Maynard. He didn't work out. They got Andre Miller. Now Andre Miller wasn't working out, so they you know do the exact same trade they did last year for sort of an undervalued veteran guy who has salary and take on a little bit more salary into next year. Would Steve Flake's contract work to do that swap again next year? <laughs> we should start uh, predicting it now. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. You know, what? I don't even remember how much he has off the top off the top of my head. Goes into 2017 or not? But again, they'll probably try and keep things open for 2016. But I, I think we should probably move on. This is way yeah. too many words already. Uh, we're going to try and take these uh, minuscule trades, give them the proper treatment, I guess. Well, we'll keep on the quick train or try to get on the quick train with the Knicks. The Knicks basically added two second round picks to swap Pablo Prigioni for Alexi Chavez. Yeah, they took on salary, and they basically bought these picks, which I don't mind. At least they're in, a, in more of an asset acquisition mode. People have talked about, oh, they're going to be in the repeater tax. I'm not so sure that that's going to be that big of an issue. Getting over the tax next year would be very unlikely, considering that their big plan is to use cap space. And then in 2016, the cap goes up so much, they're probably going to still try and use cap space again that year and so then they'll have two years in a row of not being in the tax and they don't have to worry about the repeater tax so i don't think that that's uh that's too bad for them going forward even if they are going to pay the tax this year it's only money yeah and i agree with you in the next two years they should be clean so then just with the way it works if you're except for cleveland in this situation unless you're that kind of spot if you're way under the under the cap it's really hard to get over the luxury tax and that's i think where we both assume they'll be in 2016 so I think the next one to start with, the next one to go with is Minnesota and Brooklyn. We thought Brooklyn was going to do more than they did, and I think that's a part of it as well. So Minnesota traded Thaddeus Young for Kevin Garnett, and Brooklyn, as opposed to all the other things they were rumored to be involved in, they ended up only trading KG for Thaddeus Young. Yeah, well, for the Wolves, this is the postmortem on one of the worst moves of the last few years, which was... Instead of getting that top 10 protected Miami pick this year in the Andrew Wiggins deal, they included Philadelphia in the deal and got Thaddeus Young instead. That didn't work out too well because the playoff push with Young lasted all of five games until Rubio got hurt, and now they're trading him away, so it's not even like they're going to re-sign him or get another year of him because uh, he has a player option for next year. And KG is going to come back. Uh, you can put whatever value you want to on veteran leadership and the you know him finishing his career there. Reports have indicated that he is potentially could sign even for another year or two after this, although he can't do an extension. He'll have to become a free agent first. You know, it's a nice story of him going back, but not worth a first-round pick to make that happen uh, that they could have had. So that, that's too bad for them. What do you think about it from the Nets' perspective? 
I think the Nets did pretty well. They saved some money. They got a player who makes sense for them, and there's the possibility that he could stick around after that. I mean, I don't think you're going to get anything like a hometown discount, but I think he's a nice little piece to try out. You you don't really take any risk there, and you save some money. Yeah, the savings is nice because they're in the tax, so they're really going to save almost, I think, $7 million or so. The other thing is that they're actually, you know, I don't see them making the playoffs, especially with what Miami did. But now they have a little bit more interesting of a team, at least. I mean, if you're starting Miles Plumley at the five, which is his proper position, like he doesn't work as a four because he can't shoot and he's not really that quick. And so if you play pick and roll with him, you have Young able to space the floor or get out in transition or at the very least drive off of closeouts. And you've got a more athletic, at least fun team to finish the season out with. And, and I think guys like Darren Williams and Joe Johnson will appreciate the extra space on the floor that they're going to have with what's going to be a kind of a change in philosophy, even though, you know, it's kind of antithetical to what Lionel Hollins has done, you know, playing two bigs throughout most of his career as a coach. Yeah, I think that's a lot of good points there, but we'll move on to New Orleans because, and there we can't do reciprocity because the other two teams they dealt with made bigger trades, but they brought in Norris Cole, Sean Williams, and a pick to basically, to one of those was to, to buy that from Oklahoma City, and they all they really gave up was John Salmon. So I think they did pretty well. I mean, Norris Cole is an open question, but I don't think he can be any worse than the other options they had. <laughs> I was a little disappointed in it for them, actually. I, maybe they are seeing what Oklahoma City is doing and are kind of ready to give up on, on their own playoff push, but... Cole is a guy who has been pretty much below replacement level for most of his career with a few brief blips every once in a while where he'll start hitting his threes. And Sean Williams are already waving. Uh, Ish Smith, they're waving. And I don't know what the protection is on that second rounder. And, and frankly, I don't really know anything about Latavius Williams, who's another guy that they got. But I think they could have done better to upgrade their backup point guard slot, especially with Holiday being out. If they're really serious still about trying to make the playoffs. I mean, they really just don't have an adequate backup point guard and their starter is out too. So they really have almost two point guard slots that they have to kind of fill right now. And Norris Cole to me is not the answer. He was basically a part of what was a terrible point guard rotation in Miami and was, which was a big reason why the heat had underperformed so far this year. Yeah, that's definitely a good point, and it also, that made me think of another team we're going to talk about, which is the Boston Celtics, because the Celtics, in a lot of ways, they got Isaiah Thomas for an expiring contract, and while New Orleans' salary didn't work exactly in the same way, if you're thinking about a guy like Isaiah, who's clearly a good basketball player, though it appears that there might be other things going on in terms of teammates and all that fun stuff, but what Boston did to me is they got a guy who's on an under-market value, and they gave up absolutely nothing to do it. Well, I, w- I wouldn't say that uh, because they did give up that 2016 Cleveland uh, oh, top that's 10 right. protected that's a good, that's a good point. pick. Yeah. Which, but still, that's if you look at the type of player that you are likely to get, first of all, that's down the road with that, that 2016 pick. And it's top 10 protected. So once you get out of the top 10, you're not really looking at sure things. Isaiah Thomas, he's on a declining salary. He's... You know, you're going to be making like $5 million a year. You're going to be paying whatever that draft pick is, maybe $2 million or so. And you have no guarantee that that draft pick's ever going to be anything. And it's probably not even going to come to fruition in terms of a good player, even for two years after 2016. So 
you know, you've got Thomas, who is a guy who rates very well by advanced metrics. He does tend to dominate the ball a lot, which people don't seem to like. But, you know, he's with one of his good friends growing up and Avery Bradley now. So, yeah, I mean, I think he's well worth that protected first rounder to acquire. I think this is another steal for Danny Ainge on a, on a team that needed some guys at the guard position who can shoot a little bit and create. My only question is, what does this augur for the future of Marcus Smart? Smart has been a guy who has shot surprisingly well from outside. He's been great on defense, but the hope was that he was going to be a big pick-and-roll point guard who could get to the basket and finish, and he's got, like, uh, I think I saw tweeted out today, one of the worst drive percentages on front-court touches in the whole league among perimeter players, so... If Thomas is now going to be handling the ball a lot, is Smart going to be at the two just jacking up catch-and-shoot jumpers? I was hopeful that he could become more than that in time, and uh, hopefully Thomas will not impede that development too much. That's a great point, and the possibility of Marcus Smart becoming more of a spot-up shooter would be maybe, for me, the most surprising sink first-year rookie development of any rookie I can remember. If you had told me this time last year, hey, Marcus Smart's going to be a moderately successful spot-up shooter. I mean, the defensive part, obviously, is not no surprise at all, but the offensive role is very surprising, and the, and the Isaiah Thomas... The nice part about him is that he, I think he'll be an asset. I, you and I have talked about the idea of the Nene test of whether a guy's an asset. His contract will be an asset long term, but I do agree that it'll be it'll be hard to mesh him with the guys that they already have. I actually think that he fits pretty well with Avery Bradley in some certain ways, except that I like Avery guarding ones. So I'm not sure how that's going to fit, but the nice thing is I consider him an asset after this year. So you can get, if you, if you don't like the fit, then you can get something for him later. Yeah, no, I agree. I guess the other thing too, is they swapped uh, Tayshaun Prince for Jonas Jerebko, which, you know, both those guys are expiring. So it may not be a huge thing, but I actually like Jerebko better as a player than Tayshaun Prince. At this point, we can talk more about that when we get to the Detroit section. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I like I like him, and Datome could could be fine. I I've, I liked him a little bit when he was coming into the league, Italian guy. But yeah, I think that Boston did well there. I think Tayshaun Prince wasn't a part of the solution, and maybe Jarebko is. To go to Denver, Denver traded away Aaron Aflalo and Alonzo Gee, and they got back Will Barton, Victor Claver, and Thomas Robinson, along with a lottery projected pick and they've already waived Thomas Robinson, which I was a little bit surprised by because I thought he could be a part of the last 30 games with this team. Yeah, I guess he wanted, he was in search of a larger role, I guess with, with Arthur and Fareed, two probably superior players on the team that, you know, maybe that makes sense, but I'm not sure where else he's going to go where he could get a larger role, frankly, but you know, he's going to be a free agent. His fourth year option was declined, but you know, just kind of kind of a sad uh, decline for him from being the number five pick in 2012. But I think the, the bigger thing for Denver is being the first round pick for Aflalo, who is leaving. Who is uh, you know, I think he's 28, maybe even 20, be 29 by the summer. Not going to be a part of the next good Denver team. So get a get a first round pick for him, and I think uh, the lottery protected 2016 first rounder from Portland is a decent get for him. I agree with that, and while I still like Will Barton as well, I think that's a nice little perk for them, and that also makes it a little bit worse for Portland, though Aflalo pushes him out of the rotation in terms of regular minutes. What do you like about Will Barton? I, I can't say I've ever seen anything to like about him other than the fact that like 
he like runs around a lot and can dunk some. I mean, he's just a completely inefficient player. Uh, you know, on playing with generally some pretty decent players. I, I I can't say I have much hope for him, but but maybe I'm missing something. I, I always like guys who have physical potential. I think about a guy, he's not obviously at the level of athlete of a guy like Gerald Green, but you see guys like that and you have the hope that they can that they can iron out the things that the, you know, make simplify their game and do things like that. But you're right that he hasn't shown that on the court. For me, that's more of what I saw in him as a draft prospect. All right, fair, fair enough. So, all right, who's, who's next here? I'm thinking next is Utah. It Utah did a, it was really interesting. So they traded Enos Cantor. And they traded Steve Novak, Megaton and trained Steve Novak. And they got back Perkins, who looks like it's going to be waived. But the main thing they got back is an Oklahoma City first-round pick. Looks like it's going to be, you know, it's not coming immediately because they already have the, the pick that they owe. But it's I think it's pretty nice for them that they got a first-rounder whenever that is for Cantor. Yeah, so that's, I think it's a 2017, well, it's not necessarily 2017. It's first available draft, so two years after their pick is conveyed to now it'll be, was it Philly who has it now? I believe so. Yeah, so now it's, it's conveyed to Philly, was with Denver. Oh, we didn't even talk about the JaVel McGee trade either for Denver. I, I didn't even get to that. That was that was so early in the day, I didn't even scroll down far enough. Maybe we should go back and talk about that. They basically yeah. gave up that first rounder that they got from Mozgov, which is 1-18 uh, through 18 protected uh, in 2015. And I think lottery protected thereafter to offload Javale McGee's salary, and that's that's about market rate. Javale McGee makes I think eleven million a year or so. A first round pick is what it costs to offload about ten or eleven million dollars in salary. To the extent it's not a late first round pick, that accounts for the fact that you're paying Javale McGee for this year too, and that's going to give Denver some more flexibility. I don't see them as being a huge destination, but they had a pretty expensive roster and. They have enough picks coming already that you can argue that maybe having the cap space is of more use to them going forward than having another first-round pick in the latter half of the round. So yeah, I think some people didn't really like this deal. I think I understand it a little more. And you know, it depends what their goal is. They have enough talent on that team that maybe they think that if the cards break right, they can get back into the playoff mix for next year. Yeah, and the other part of that is that they, between that trade and the Afalo trade, they picked up some big trade exceptions. And while we can be openly skeptical about whether teams, including Denver, will use those trade exceptions, it does give them a piece in case they wanted to do something like picking up an asset over the summer and then moving that asset later, which in a lot of ways is, you know, that that's happened throughout time. And, you know, they, they can do that in a way that's kind of like what happened with Afalo. So if they can do something in that vein to get an asset whether they keep that asset or not, that's a nice little perk as well. Yeah, so so we're getting back to Utah now. You know, I think it's a disappointment if you, it depends on how you look at this return, a lottery-protected first-rounder from Oklahoma City that can be conveyed, the earliest could be conveyed is 2017, but two years after that pick gets conveyed to Philly, whenever that ends up being, that seems like it's not that great of a return for a guy who was once the number three pick. Well, he was drafted under the previous regime. Kevin O'Connor drafted at a time when teams didn't quite understand that post-up big guys who can't protect the rim and can't shoot threes 
aren't as valuable as they used to be. Now that's an understanding that's come into the league. And, of course, Rudy Gobert has emerged. And so now how much are you going to want to pay Ennis Cantor this summer as a restricted free agent when he's going to be your third best big on the roster behind Gobert and, and Derek Favors, both of whom have really emerged this year? So when you look at it that way, you have him getting this pick. Uh, you know, it's lottery protected. It could end up being a little bit higher, especially if one of Katie or Westbrook leaves. But the other thing, too, is that they managed to offload $3.7 million of Steve Novak for 2015-16. And that actually will allow them to get, and also not having to worry about resetting cancer, that'll let them get into the free agent market a little bit and see if maybe they can pick up a good 3 and D wing to really round out their roster a little more. Because they've actually had, you could say, their front court, when you when you look at Hayward at small forward and then Gobert and Favors, that that's like a playoff-level front court. It's just that they've been pretty much like replacement level or below in the backcourt all year. So if they can get some development from Dante Exum and Trey Burke, bring in another guy on the wing who could start and do 3 and D, maybe in free agency, you get another draft pick, or they could even consider trading their draft pick this year for more of a veteran. And then you have Alec Burks coming off the bench. Maybe that's a team that competes for the playoffs the next year. Yeah, and they it also gives them another arrow in the quiver, whether they use it now or, or later, to get a stretch for, which I think is the other thing that you'll want. Because one of the nice components of favors is that he can play both both big man positions. And so, to me, the ideal third big with that system is a, is a stretch four in some capacity. And so they, whether they use a pick for that, whether they use some space for that, you know, Novak didn't work out. They'll, they'll have more options to try it. And Grant Jarrett, who knows, maybe he could end up being a useful player for them as well. Yeah. I mean, he was a McDonald's all American, you know, top 10 recruit two years ago, he can jump and he can shoot threes. You know, he made 38% of his threes in the D league. I, I mean, Someone drafted that low, you never think it's probable that he's going to turn out, but it's another lottery picket. Maybe ticket maybe turns into a rotation big for them, as you were saying. Yeah, I like that. And as you said with Cantor, I mean, it, yeah, if you think about it in terms of where he was drafted, it doesn't seem like a big return. But the problem with him is that what the skill set he brings just isn't as valuable as it used to be. And he doesn't make sense on a lot of teams because what you need in a complementary player or what you need to get from your big men that he doesn't bring is very hard to get. And Oklahoma City, we'll talk about them later, they might have one of the right guys, but just because Serge Ibaka is a great fit for him doesn't mean that he's worth it to bring in. Yeah, no, uh, we'll get to them, yeah. (laughs) So we'll go on to Detroit, which I think is a a really fascinating situation because Reggie Jackson is a good basketball player, and... They have this really bizarre circumstance now where they have a guy who is a talented guy, and he in some ways is a rental player, but there's it's kind of like a rental with an option to buy, where he's probably going to be overpaid this summer, but they have the ability now to make a decision on that, and it gives them a better potential of making the playoffs. I would feel better about this. First of all, all right, well, let's talk about this first. Like, what is Reggie Jackson Really, you know, you you said he's a good player. Okay, all right. I mean, I, I wouldn't argue with you necessarily that he's a good player. But, you know, what what you know, is he the twentieth best point guard in basketball? Is he the twenty fifth best point guard in basketball? You know, I mean he's not he has never really been able to shoot threes. He's got good defensive potential, though he hasn't quite 
lived up to that. He's got that enormous wingspan. He's pretty quick and, and athletic. But he doesn't really get to the foul line that much either. So, you know, where do you think he kind of ranked? I mean, are you, are you feeling happy about him as your starting point guard? And, and, you know, we'll leave out his salary, which we'll get to. But just, you know, is that, is that a guy where you're like, all right, this is a we have a good starting point guard now. We don't need to worry about this position anymore for you. Not for me. And I feel uncomfortable, you and, I, you and I have talked about this before, with the idea of primary ball handler. I'm not sure that I feel comfortable saying, giving him the keys and saying, okay, this is the guy who's running your offense. I mean, as a gap filler for this year, sure, I don't think you could do much You could do much better than him. But in terms of the long term with this team, like, would I say, okay, you're going to say the core of this team for the next three years is Andre Drummond, and Reggie Jackson and, you know, whoever else from that morass works itself out. Like, I don't feel nearly as comfortable with that. And as, is it just an issue in the league? Like, if a guy's not a clear-cut primary ball handler and he should he should defend point guards, I'm not sure how high his value is. It's kind of the reverse and his canter in that way. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, and, I mean, now you look at how much he's going to get paid. I would feel better about this trade, but more faith in Stan Van Gundy in the asset management portion of the GM job where, you know, I mean, he, he, for example, Josh Smith is a perfect example. He could have just sent him home, but you know, he, he didn't eat trade, he traded and maybe found a trade for him, but no, they decided to stretch him instead. And it worked out for them. They started playing better. And also, you know, there's some goodwill that comes from that because, you know, whatever that's worth, we, we can argue about that, but, you know, not it's kind of a mean thing to do to send a guy home instead of just letting him have his freedom if you don't want to use him anymore. But you know, I think Stan acquired the guy, likes him, but now is he going to be able to play hardball with him and get him on a reasonable deal as a restricted free agent, or is he just going to go ahead and you know back up the money truck without really negotiating hard the way he should? Because you know, if Reggie Jackson is on an eight million deal or a nine million a year deal maybe i'm cool with it he reportedly turned down four for 48 from oklahoma city which i think is ridiculously high for him so you know he's going to be asking for more than that is this going to devolve into a greg monroe situation now where he's going to take the qualifying offer you know i i think they're they're not at all out of the woods yet and a lot of the outcomes still potentially are bad the good news is they didn't give up more long term but here's another question if if Detroit is trying to make the playoffs this year and and you know they're kind of right in that mix with all those other you know 20 and 30 or or whatever it is east teams in the mix for the seven and eight seed I think they actually got worse this year uh what do you think of that I definitely think if they got better, they didn't get better by much. I'm not a huge DJ Augusty fan. I think he was outperforming. You've been more familiar, particularly with his recent work, than I've been. But also, Tayshaun Prince, I, I just don't see him moving the needle with that team. I think that that's a good point. But at the same time, if we're taking how they've played since the Josh Smith waiver as a whole, so that's had a, a really high peak and some less peaky time, if that's their new normal, I think they still have a reasonably good chance of making it. Yeah, they, like I said, I think you know Jarebko was someone who, at least, and I, I need to look at exactly what his stats are overall in the year, but just you know, at least watching him, he was someone that teams had to respect from three point range. He could play a, a stretch four and not get killed with bench units around either Drummond or Monroe, and he was closing some games for them, you know, within the last couple of months. You know, Prince is not a guy who has the same level of shooting 
I don't think, as Jerebko, and maybe not quite as much toughness on the boards either. So, and, and then, you know, you lost Kyle Singler, too, who's a much better player than Tayshaun Prince. Yeah, uh, great point. And, you know, and, and he, you know, he was shooting 40% on threes. Who's going to replace him now? So, I think they, and then Augustin, I'm not sure that he's not at least a defensive player than Reggie Jackson this year with his ability to shoot threes. I mean, why aren't you just going to go under every screen now on Reggie Jackson in the, in the pick and roll? until he proves that he can shoot better than 25% on threes. Yeah, that's a good point. And then the other thing, uh, I don't want to mention something too far out. I recorded a podcast before this with uh, Dan Feldman of Piston Powered, and he brought up that, in his opinion, the worst-case scenario for the Pistons was Reggie signing a qualifying offer a la Greg Monroe and then leaving. But for me, in some ways, that isn't the worst-case scenario because in that situation, you haven't overpaid him and you got a second year at a really good value. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, and you can always just overpay him in 2016 if you if you wanted to. Also, and he's not super young either. He's I think he's 24, going to be 25 soon. So, yeah, I, I think overpaying him is probably the worst case scenario. And then, but because I I still think despite his desire to be you know great and be a starting point guard, he's a better guy off the bench because he's just. He's not he's not a guy where I'm like, all right, you know, my point guard position is set with this guy uh, because he's someone who has to have the ball in his hands and and he hasn't shown that much ability to be very efficient with the ball in his hands and he can't spot up and shoot when someone else is trying to create. Yep, I think we're I think we're in pretty similar boats with that. I want to move on to Houston, which had an I think you can make an argument they had one of the most surprising days. And the pre, we already talked a little bit about the Prigioni Shved move, which was more in some ways of a salary move than anything else. But the other move, which was far more notable, is that they traded Isaiah Cannon and a pretty solid 2015 second round pick for recent second round pick KJ McDaniels. Yeah, well, the number one thing that comes into play here is McDaniels' contract situation. He had chafed at signing a long term deal at basically the minimum salary as many second-round picks do with some more guaranteed money, and he bet it on himself. And the reason he was able to do that is because every second-round pick, to keep their rights, you have to offer them a required tender, which is basically a one-year deal. And he said, all right, I'm going to just sign the required tender. I'm not going to sign a longer contract and become a free agent at the end of this year. In the first month and a half, two months of the season, he was looking like he was a guy who could get you know, a pretty, a pretty big deal as a restricted free agent. Now, that would be limited, like the Omer Ashik and Jeremy Lin offers, to the mid-level exception in the first two years. But you know, he's looking like a guy who might get close to that. Now he's regressed on his three-point shooting, as his college translations kind of showed that he would. But he's still an athletic guy. But I think that's why Philadelphia was willing to move him, because they feared that he might get paid, and they value their flexibility. So they might as well go with Kanan, who is under contract basically at the minimum through next year. But for the Rockets, it's a chance to get some more athleticism on their roster, get a guy who can grow with the team long-term as a nice prospect. And they, as a team that is you know going to be good probably for the foreseeable future, getting that kind of a talent I think is worth it. You can he, He's a better guy than you can expect to get. And if they have to pay him you know, a little bit more as a restricted free agent this year. I think they're willing to do that because they're going to be capped out anyway or closer to the cap. And 
I guess the last thing I'll say too is if they do decide to move some pieces and use cap space this summer, McDaniel's cap hold is going to be really small, so they can just do their stuff and then try and re-sign him for more if that's what it ends up taking. The timing on that's tough because he's restricted, but that's a thought as well. Yeah, I mean, the Rockets have, an ex- have experience dealing with challenging restricted free agents. They did it last year, but y- if you if you can play it right, I think that there's a huge benefit there that you can do with him. And with them, you're getting a guy who can be a contributor right away. I mean, you're not going to ask him to do a whole heck of a lot, and that's great because he can, he can do his thing. He can be a great terror in transition. I think that's a very useful thing for them, particularly off their bench. And if they like him, they can keep him. If they don't like him, then they can either move him in something or they can just let him go. So I think it's a nice move for Houston. Again, it's another one of those where they didn't give up a ton. Cannon's a decent enough player, but he's not a pivotal piece of their feature. So I th- I liked what Houston did overall. It's a good upside play, I think. You know, Cannon is going to be, you know, maybe he turns into a good backup point guard someday. Daniels is a guy who could end up being a starter on the wing someday. Yeah, I think that's about fair. Um, there, you could go in a couple different. There were right about at a tier, but a team that we've already talked about a little bit and is right in this level in terms of impact is Oklahoma City. And in a lot of ways, what they did is they remade their bench because they traded Reggie, they traded Kendrick Perkins, they traded Grant Jarrett, and more kind of fringy guys like that. And they picked up DJ Augustine, they picked up Anus Cantor, they picked up Kyle Singler and, and Novak. So, what has as I've really kind of let it sink in and everything is like, do you think they got better and how much better do you think they got? Well, I think it's important to look at really all of their moves, starting with the waiters trade. And as I've lamented many a time, their biggest need coming into the season was a wing who could defend at an above average rate and hopefully, hopefully defend wing scorers on the other team or even the point guard if necessary, and hit threes enough to keep the defense honest or even be good at it. So they've given away all these assets now. I mean, this is a team that hoarded assets for years and years and years and and never made a deadline move. Now they've made all these in-season trades. They've given up their 2015 protected first-round pick. They've given up their 2017 protected first-round pick. You know, they're kind of pretty close to out of bullets to fire now. And I don't think they filled what their biggest need was. Yeah, and also I think they created somewhat of a need in terms of center depth. Obviously, Steven Adams will be back eventually, but they're going to be hurting there a little bit because Canner's a fine player, but he's not a great player. And I, I think that that's going to be a problem. Augustine's a nice little addition as a backup, and I like Singler a lot actually with this team. But you're right that they didn't—they didn't answer their biggest question, and that's a huge problem for this team. Yeah, I mean that said, I love what they're what they've done overall on offense. I mean this is this is a team now that should be pretty unstoppable on offense as long as they're not playing Anthony Robertson all the time. Because I mean I think Augustine is a better fit than Jackson for the same reasons I said, you know, he can play with Westbrook off the ball, 40% three point shooter. He can be useful there. He's a guy that you can't go under the pick and roll on. Cause he'll, he'll make shots. And then also Cantor is a great offensive rebounder. He's one of the best in the league at that. If you have a Baca space in the floor or you want to go small, at least offensively, Cantor can punish guys in the post, especially second unit defenders. 
uh, you know, he has his weaknesses shooting. He's very up and down and, and obviously defensively is even more of an issue, but you know, offensively, he certainly can provide a lot and cause some matchup problems on, on second units. And then Singler is a guy who at least, you know, he'll at least execute the system and not get totally taken advantage of defensively. And he shoots 40% on threes. So, and, and then you've got Morrow, you've got Deion Waiters. I mean, it's really, I don't want to say like an embarrassment of riches, but it's an embarrassment at least of options, except that that option doesn't include a like two-way stud on the wing. Yep, I think that's a good clarification on it. And I also think that Singler, I, I like his fit with both the, kind of with the starters and with the backups. I've been a fan of his for a long time. If you, you can dig up some of my stuff on when, when he when he was younger. But I like his passing ability. I think that he's, he's a good fit for that. And I also am excited to see what a couple of these guys, Cantor in particular, will do on a competitive team. You know, he's chafed a little bit at his role from what I've heard in, in Utah, but He's gonna prop after Steve Nams gets back. He'll take a smaller role on a on a really good team, and I think it'll be exciting to see what guys like that can do in that new circumstance. Yeah, well, that that's another thing. There are two additional issues. I mean, you've got Dion Waiters and you've got Cantor. Both have got guys who you might argue have somewhat outsized egos for the production that they actually provide. Maybe not, you know, just in terms of pure points. But on the defensive end and in the floor game, and those are guys who are now going to be coming off the bench. They're not going to be closing. They those are guys that might chafe, especially if things aren't going perfectly on the team level. The other thing is the finances here. Cantor is a restricted free agent. That's part of why Utah wanted to get rid of him. His market again will be very interesting. I think at least we can count on Oklahoma City to not overpay him like crazy. But, you know, if they do re-sign him for even $8 million, $9 million a year, they're basically guaranteeing two years in a row now of luxury tax. I'm a little curious why they wouldn't have just punted somebody like Perry Jones or Jeremy Lamb, who really aren't going to be in the plans now with all these guys they have, and try to get under the tax. I would think that teams would have been willing to just take those guys, and I think I'm not, I don't have the math exactly in front of me, but I think with those two guys and maybe another minimum guy, you might have been able to get under the tax. And those guys are, are now in the third year already. I don't see them really being a part of the plan in the future. So you might, might as well offload them, give them to someone else and not pay the tax. But the sad part is now they're going to be paying the tax very likely two years in a row. And if they'd just been willing to do that a couple of years ago, uh, they could still have James Harden on the team. Yeah, and I believe, based on when Harden's extension would have kicked in, that this would have been their second year paying the tax. Yeah, well, if that. I mean, and they, they could have amnestied Perkins as well or, or found some way to offload him. I mean, they, they really only probably would have been paying the tax in one year. So, But I think now they're starting to see the writing on the wall with KD potentially leaving, and they're going to try and go for it. I just I feel like they could have done done better with all the assets that they gave up here Instead of trading that pick to Utah, why not pick up Aaron Afal for this year uh, and then re-sign him for the same amount you're going to probably have to sign Cantor for? I mean, I do like the fact that Cantor is young and you know maybe he'll really turn into a potential 20-10 and 10 guy, even if he's not that great on defense. That's worth it. But, man, I mean, I, I just it, it's a little disappointing to me that you look at what their biggest need was and they just didn't fill it. 
Yeah, I definitely agree with that. But we'll move on to... I think you could make an argument it was the most flooring team just because it came out and was nowhere, and that's Milwaukee. So Milwaukee traded Brandon Knight primarily, and they got back Michael Carter-Williams, they got back Tyler Ennis, and they got back Miles Plumley, not Mason Plumley, Miles, the other one of the other Plumleys, not the other one because there's a third one. But I'm not the biggest Michael Carter-Williams fan, but at the same time, Brandon Knight was about to get paid. Yeah, I think Knight is someone who has been overrated by a lot of people. He's got some good counting stats. He is, you know, anytime someone is the quote-unquote best player on a team that is doing well, especially if they're unexpectedly doing well, they get a disproportionate amount of the credit. That's what was happening with Knight, the Bucks of the number two defense. That's why they're 30-23 and 23 right now, and they're in the sixth seed in the East is because they've just been awesome on defense. You can't really put that much of that on him. You know, he, has, he, he does have some advantages. He's a very good shooting point guard from beyond the arc. But I would put him firmly below average as a passer among point guards. And he's not a guy who, like, gets to the foul line a ton or is, is all that efficient. So he's not someone who, again, he's another point guard who, all right, is he going to be the 15th best point guard in the league? Maybe the 10th best on a good day? And now, you know, you're going to be paying him $12 million a year, $13 million a year. I think it's better not to do that when you're building this team around Giannis and Jabari. The other thing that's interesting is Chris Middleton is also a restricted free agent. And I would much rather pay Chris Middleton than pay Brandon Knight if that's what I have to choose. Uh, because Middleton is a guy who shoots well. He's, he's one of the best wings in advanced metrics defensively. And he's someone who has really been a big driver of their defense, and wings are a lot more scarce than point guards are. So if you've got to choose between one of those two guys, I'm paying Middleton, not, not Brandon Knight. And now you've got Michael Carter-Williams for another couple of years cost-controlled to see what he can do. And not only that, but Middleton makes sense with Giannis. And so if you're thinking about that your forward combination is going to be Giannis and Jabari Parker, I think that Middleton makes a lot of sense to complete that trio. And instead of looking for that, you can look for a lot of different point guards. You don't have to look for a single one. You can try out Michael Carter-Williams, see if that works. You can use some of your other assets. And Ennis is a nice, you know, little throw-in to see if it works. And I like Miles Plumlee there, too. I mean, you're not going to ask him to do a ton, but I think that he will have defensive talent around him, which is exciting. And he, I assume he will end up eventually being in the, the second unit doing all that. But I'm excited to see what he can do with this team. Yeah, he's someone who can be a, a good pick-and-roll finisher as long as they don't try and like feed him in the post and, and have him brick jump hooks. Uh, I, I think he can be useful for them, and he's only in his third year, so he's got another very cheap year. And Ennis is a, is a good asset play as well. I think people kind of forgot about him, but he was the 20th pick. Some people liked him. He was pretty decent in the advanced metrics. I've never been a fan of him because I'm not really sure exactly what he did what you can say he does extremely well. But, you know, why not take a flyer on him? I mean, he's cheap. See if it works out. Agreed on all counts. And the next team is another one of those Megan moves, the Sixers. So the Sixers, really, the the primary piece that they sent away is Michael Carter-Williams, but they got back some legitimate assets. I mean, they got back the Lakers pick, which people, you know, people really like. And then they also got Isaiah Cannon. Then they got a pretty, pretty solid... 2015 second round pick and then yeah i mean that's that's a quite the return well so 
What would you rather have? Would you rather have that Lakers pick, or would you rather have Michael Carter-Williams if you're the Sixers? Lakers pick, easily. And there are, a couple, there are a couple reasons. So the main reason is that, first of all, I'm not super sold on Michael Carter-Williams. I'm, I'm not sold on him really at all. So to me, the Lakers pick is there's a possibility that you get it this year, and then it's a really good pick. Then it's going to be, you know, six or seven. If you don't get it this year... Yeah, well, let's well, let's go to that, because I, I think the chances of that are pretty low yeah. at this point. I mean, they're the Lakers are looking like they're going to be the number three quote-unquote seed in the dra- in the draft lottery, maybe even higher than that. They're, they are at 13 wins. They've got the Sixers, the Knicks, and the Wolves above them, but I expect the Wolves to play much, much better now that Rubio and Pekovic and those guys and, and Kevin Martin are back. Uh, so I think the Lakers probably end up third. You know, if they, if they make it there, their chances of coming out of the top five are pretty low, but... It does set up the absolutely hilarious Sixers Lakers game. There's two two games they still have to play in the end of March in, the, in an eight day period, and I can't think of any games in NBA history where both teams would have had more incentive to lose. Because if the Sixers lose, then the Lakers they the Sixers better their own draft pick chances, and they also make the Lakers get a win and hurt their chances of losing the top five pick, which will then go to the Sixers. So, and same thing, the Lakers, vice versa, same thing. They, they're going to want to lose. So they don't give up the pick directly to the Sixers. So it's really that we may see some high comedy in that game. I will be DVRing it. Which team signs Mark Madsen for that game? <laughs> Mark Madsen, a Lakers assistant. They could just activate him. <laughs> actually, actually, I don't know how that would work if you can activate an assistant coach. But yeah, I mean, it's going to be it, it, it's a crazy situation. But going back to the Lakers, let's say it's a twenty, let's say it's a twenty sixteen pick. I don't think the Lakers are making the playoffs next year. I don't see a realistic path for that to happen, especially with Kevin Love likely off the market. So if they're not going to make the playoffs next year, they're it's top three protected after this year. I don't see much of a chance that they fall that far, even that you could guarantee that. Cause even if you have the worst record, the most likely pick you end up with is fourth. So I think that you're probably getting a mid to late lottery pick. And I would much rather have that than Michael Carter Williams, especially Michael Carter Williams with less years on the rookie scale. Yeah. I, you know, I think there is, so that pick is top three protected in 2016 if we assume that the Lakers keep it this year. It's a decent bet. I mean, and that's what this is all about for Sam Hinkie. He's all about playing the odds. Uh, Michael Carter-Williams, probably not going to become a superstar. Maybe probably not even necessarily going to become a top 15 point guard in this league. So trade him in for another spin of the roulette wheel and see whether you can get a star. And the draft itself is a roulette wheel, and then... How good the Lakers are going to be next year is another aspect of that. You say, all right, they got $25 million tied up in Kobe Bryant. How good can they be next year, even if they get their number one target in free agency, which they might not necessarily even do, and they have their draft pick, and they have Julius Randle. Well, rookies don't really win. So, yeah, I think it's the odds are the Lakers don't make the playoffs next year. So you're looking at a lottery pick, and you could be looking at a relatively high lottery pick again depending on how things turn out for the Lakers and you know, betting on the Lakers to do poorly is a bet that would have paid off pretty well over these last two, three years. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And we'll bet we'll go move to the team that bet on that originally. And that's the Phoenix Suns. I think that if 
Goran Dragic had made it pretty clear that he wasn't going to be there. I really liked that component of the trade, of their day, sorry, that's a better way of putting it, the component of their day. But that wasn't all of their day. They also made the, they traded Isaiah Thomas away and they got back Brandon Knight. What did you think of their day as a whole? Well, it's, I think it's better to kind of, to break it down. Because they really, unlike perhaps some of these other teams in, in some respects, I think it is not as interrelated. I mean, you're trading Dragic for the return that you're going to get, and that was a separate trade. Miami wasn't involved in all the rest of these. I think they did great in that part. The return there is a 2017 first-rounder, 1-7 through protected, and a 2021 completely unprotected first-rounder from Miami. You know, those are the, the jewels of that trade. There's some cap flotsam thrown in as well. There are a lot of reasons why... Phoenix wouldn't have been able to get that offer or as good of an offer from teams with Dragic. I mean, he had this whole list. He only wanted to go to three teams, one of which was Miami. Uh, Whoever got him was then going to have to probably overpay him with a five-year deal to keep him or risk losing him in free agency. So that reduces his value. And then also that team would have had to have something to give back. So I think given all of that, to have gotten the two first-round picks, even if they are a little further out in the future – that's useful. The other thing to remember, too, is the Suns already have a ton of draft picks. They have they got rid of Ennis, but they have T.J. Warren, who's not playing at all, who they like. They have Archie Goodwin, who's not playing at all, who should probably get some burn at, at some point as a young guy still. So getting more draft picks in the next couple of years maybe isn't necessarily that helpful. You go further out, but you also have a lot less protection on those picks than you might have gotten from another destination, like if you tried to trade them to Houston or, or Boston or something. So I thought they did great with just that component of the trade. Yeah, I thought they did really well in that component of the trade too, and I think that there was a real risk that they were going to get him to leave for nothing, and that is a huge possibility with that. And he was going to be a true unrestricted free agent. This wasn't a situation where they really had that leverage, and a lot of the teams that he was interested in, not Miami, which is notable, would have had the space to sign him outright. So you don't have to get that leverage of a sign-in trade or something like that. He, he was going to be able to leave, and so they got, some, they got some things back that will be useful for them, whether they use them when they get them or whether they trade them ahead of time, because that's something you can always do with future assets. Sure. So do you agree with me that trading Thomas for that 2016 first-rounder top 10 protected of Cleveland's is not that great of a deal? I agree with you. Yeah, it's it's you know if if things were really that bad then maybe but I feel like they could have done better and it, if they were already decided that they were going to trade Dragic then that would have opened up some minutes anyway and I think it would have been fine to just keep him. Who's a better player, Isaiah Thomas or Brandon Knight? Uh I mean I think Brandon Knight might be slightly better, but I'm not sure that you could say that definitively. And I know that Isaiah Thomas is going to have a better contract. Yeah, no that that's definitely true. The, the contract. And for all that people want to complain about the way Isaiah Thomas pounds the ball uh, in Milwaukee, Knight, I think, was just as bad as him. Uh, you know, I think Thomas at least has more vision out of pick and roll, even if he is dominating the ball up until that point. Now, granted, Knight didn't have that many options that he was playing with necessarily. You know, maybe he'll play better as kind of an off-the-ball guy. He's he's taller so and is you know going to be better defensively than Thomas, but when you look at both player and the contracts they're going to have, I think I'd rather have Thomas. 
there, there's all these rumblings about how, you know, he's hard to play with and people don't like him and blah, blah. But, you know, I, that's all speculation. I mean, I, I can't speak to that stuff based on what I know and what I see on the court. Isaiah Thomas making $6 million a year is a better player to me than Brandon Knight doing making $13 million a year. I agree with that. And the other huge part of this for Phoenix is that I don't get how Bledsoe and Knight together makes any sense. I, I, I just don't see that working. Uh, I don't mind it so much. Uh, Knight will guard the one. Bledsoe will probably guard twos mostly. It is kind of a shame because Bledsoe can be so good on ones, but he's strong enough and has the length to guard most twos. And then Bledsoe will probably have the ball in his hands a little more. Knight as a really good three-point shooter is someone who can who can spot up pretty well, and you know then he'll run the offense with the second unit. I do think that they're taking advantage of kind of an inefficiency still where there's just more good point guards than our shooting guards. So if you have a guy like Bledsoe who can play the point on offense and can guard shooting guards defensively, that you might as well just have two point guards out there because you're just going to have better offense than some wing guy who you're going to also have to overpay and just isn't going to be as good an offensive player as, as Knight will be. So, so I see that, but I still think, you know, they're going to have to overpay Knight and it's, uh, it, it may not be that pretty, you know, the other thing is that I, you wouldn't want to dig in too much to your uh, 2016 cap space, which is now what Phoenix is going to be doing. I mean, I, I, I don't think of Knight really as someone who's like some amazing championship level player that, you know, you're like, all right, you know, we're, we're set now at the two. Yeah, and I think that also goes along to me with the issue with the, with the Morris Twins. They're both good basketball players, but when you think about you know, who are going to be the key players on the next great Suns team? I mean, Bledsoe's, Bledsoe's probably their best hope at that. Maybe Alex Len. Alex Len uh, has a lot of potential. But the other guys, I, I feel so ambivalent towards them. And also, they gave up that. Oh, Mar- Markeith, is, Markeith is really good, dude. I think you're giving him short shrift. Maybe okay. maybe not intentionally, but. Yeah, I mean, uh, he's, he's good. But do you think he's like a starter on a team that can make, let's say, the conference finals? Oh, absolutely. I would I would even say he's been close to their best player, especially if you look at the on-off data this year and, and the RPM stuff. He's really good. He's he's someone who I think can be a quality defender. You know, he can post up. He can shoot shoot some threes. I think he's going to only get better at that and get to be where he's a weapon in in pick and pop. I really like him a lot. I think he's a totally good solution at power forward, and I think he's extremely underrated and is also on a fantastic contract at $8 million a year. Mm-hmm. And then the, yeah, his, his price is amazing. And then the other, yeah, so they gave up, the other thing with Phoenix is they gave up those assets. They gave up the Lakers pick, and they gave up Miles Plumlee, who's an asset, and they gave up Tyler Ennis, who they weren't using, but is an asset nonetheless. And they did all that, and they, they're they going to have to pay Brandon Knight more than they're paying Isaiah. So I, I just, I understand why they did some of the other things beyond the Dragic trade, which I loved, but I don't love the total picture beyond the trade with the, with Miami. I mean, I do like this trade and, and, and a lot of these trades because actually teams are showing some creativity and taking some risks. You know, it's not just, all right, this guy's going to be a free agent, so we'll give you a pick and we'll and you trade it to him and we'll just argue over the protection. Like, we got three-way deals going on. There's guys we never would have thought would be traded. Guys are going to be restricted free agents. And teams... Teams are gambling that the guy they're getting is going to be good. You know, the Thunder are gambling on Ennis Cancer is going to be a, a real good player. The Pistons are gambling that Reggie Jackson is going to be a real good player. And, and same thing with Phoenix on 
on night. So, you know, I think this is an understanding that that Lakers pick wasn't necessarily going to be that good this year, that it probably was not going to be conveyed. So, you know, maybe that's that's why they gave it up. I'm not sure whether I'd rather have that pick or Knight. And I think that they could do a lot better and, and upgrade a weak position more with like a good 3D guy on the wing than with Knight. But we'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, you know, he, he will turn into to being a really good player and his vision will improve. Yeah, he definitely could. And the other one, when you were talking about those betting on guys, is Michael Carter-Williams with the Bucks. I think that was another one that came out of nowhere. I don't think most people thought either Knight or Michael Carter-Williams was going to get traded, much less one team swapping one for the other, though you know the other guy changed teams beyond that. Yeah, I mean, the, the only worry for the Bucks is that Giannis's shooting has been awful this year, yep. and Michael Carter-Williams is a famously bad shooter, too. One or or both of those guys are going to have to learn to shoot. Uh, hopefully it'll be Giannis because he shot okay on threes last year, and I think he's in the midst of kind of changing his form to have a higher release point, and that's why he's been a little more gun-shy from three this year. But uh, you can't have two guys who shoot as badly as those two in the starting lineup and expect to have a good offense. Right. But we'll move on to the last team unless I'm missing somebody, and that's the Miami Heat. And we talked about how we really like the trade from the Suns' perspective. But from Miami's perspective, I understand it. They got a lot better this year. Goran Dragic is a really good basketball player. He shores up an, a, an incredible weak point. But at the same time, it, it's one of the biggest gambles I can think of, and some have compared it to the the Nets acquiring Paul Pearson and Kevin Garnett. But the big difference there was that the... Nets were kind of locked in anyway. They were going to be spending a lot of money for those years, and they got better, and yeah, they gave up a ton of assets, and, and there was all the craziness there. But Miami gave up picks in years that they basically have nobody other than Bosch and Napier on roster. And so assuming they keep Dragic, then yeah, they'll probably have him too. But it's a it's a gamble. It's a big gamble. Well, it is, especially when you throw in what his contract is likely to be. I mean, this was such a win for Dragic because he can get the fifth year from Miami re-signing with them uh, as a bird free agent. And the talk and assumption seems to be that they're going to just max him out. Uh, I don't know whether that'll actually be true or not. That's not what I would want to do. But then again, if I traded two first-round picks for him, you're not exactly about to let him walk somewhere else. But so that fifth year will be, you know, assuming that the cap comes in around as it's projected $67.4 million, he'll be eligible as a seven a guy with seven to ten years of experience for the 30% max. That means that in his last year, if he gets the maximum raises, he's gonna be making twenty-four million dollars as a thirty-three-year-old. And you know, he's a big point guard, he can shoot, he might age a little bit better. But that's still going to be a massive overpay. It's a big win for him because if you think about it, if he just did the four-year deal and then becomes a free agent at age 33, he's not going to get paid $24 million for that year. So he's sort of forcing himself to get overpaid on the back end for the production that he's providing this year. And this year is part of the deal, too. We can't forget that, that he's on a very cheap $7.5 million this year. And we also can't forget that Miami probably had the worst point guards in the league. And upgrading from from them to a guy who's a near all-star and maybe even be you know at an all-star level once he has the ball in his hands more, uh, that could really catapult Miami. And they have a pretty nice starting lineup now 
if they can stay healthy, the depth is pretty rough. But next year, they'll get McRoberts back and hopefully can sign someone, depending on how much Drogatry signs for, either either the taxpayer mid-level or, or the mid-level in the BAE. Uh, and then maybe they could be a threat next year if everything breaks right. A lot of it's, it's going to depend on how much of this that we've seen from Whiteside is real. But I guess ultimately, like you don't get good in the NBA if you don't take some risks, unless you're uh, Oklahoma City and you just happen to nail three top five draft picks in a row and get Serge Ibaka at number 24. You got to take some risks. You know, the Warriors are this good because they took some risks. They traded two first round picks for Andre Iguodala. They bet on Steph Curry when no one knew if he was going to be healthy. You know, they didn't trade Clay Thompson for Kevin Love, and then they gave him a max deal. That's how you get good is you take risks. For a lot of teams, it doesn't work out. But there's only one champion, and you got to make some high, high upside moves, even if they have high downside, if you're going to be the one team out of that 30 that wins a championship. Yeah, I agree with you entirely, and Miami also, not only does this make the playoffs a really likely thing, but I think it makes them dangerous in the playoffs, especially considering, unlike the West, the two-seed in in the East might not be the second-best team in the East. Yeah, I mean, so if you think about it now, so the Hawks are going to be locked into the one-seed, we're going to assume. Then you've got Toronto, Washington, Cleveland, and Chicago in the scrum for two through five. Obviously, you don't want to be in four and five because then you have to play one of the other really good teams. And Miami is probably too far behind Milwaukee to catch them no matter what happens. So we assume Miami is the seventh seed. You're really probably going to want to be the three seed in the East. I would rather, assuming that Miami team is healthy and they're playing all their guys playoff minutes, uh, so their bad bench doesn't become nearly as much of an issue. I would be fine with not having home court advantage in a potential 2-3 series in the second round if it meant I get to play the Bucks instead of that Miami team, uh, who, by the way, is also going to be awesome to watch. I can't wait to catch them in a game. Yeah, they're a league pass favorite. And then also, Milwaukee, while they've played great defense this year, they don't have Jabari Parker this year, so their offense is going to be, I think, going to be very susceptible in a playoff series. So I think playing Milwaukee will not be fun, but it won't be dangerous whereas playing Miami will be really dangerous. Yeah, I mean, we can only hope for having a 2-7 Cleveland-Miami series. I think, you know, as a Chicago guy, I will be hoping that the Bulls get the three seed and Cleveland is two, although we don't want to give a short shift to Toronto, who has a, you know, a pretty significant lead for that two seed. But yeah, that's, that wouldn't be the greatest ever reward for Toronto for beating out all these other teams and then you know having to play Miami in the first round you probably didn't see it I wrote on Twitter that while a Cavs heat first round series would be great I'd actually be more excited to see it as a second round series which is also entirely possible oh yeah well it's uh it probably would be at the Bulls expense which which would not be good but I was thinking uh, Toronto but sure yeah (laughs) yeah I mean you know it's interesting if you you look at now some of the teams that didn't do anything and and you see the sort of creative outside the box trades that teams now were finally willing to make. I mean, we went through this era of a couple of years last year's trade deadline was such a dud where teams are just not willing to give up first round picks under any circumstances. And now it seems that that's loosened for whatever reason. And it's surprising in some respects because 
you know, first round picks being cost controlled with the cap going up, getting guys on those rookie deals is more valuable than ever. But on the other hand, you've got some teams who are like, all right, we get, we're just going to go for it. We're going to take the plunge. Oklahoma City hoarded assets for years. Now they're taking the plunge. So Miami, never never one to be bashful, is doing that. Uh, Portland throwing in another first-round pick to get a guy like Aflalo who can be a free agent. And you look at teams like, say, Chicago, you know, who could certainly have used a, another two-way guy on the wing like, like Aflalo, but they did consider giving up a first-round pick even though they have an extra one uh, coming from the Kings. You know, you look at Toronto, who has that Knicks picks in, in 2016. They've got their all their own picks, I think, going forward. Washington didn't really do anything either. So it'll be interesting to see whether those teams that stand pat made the right decision or whether these moves are going to put some of these other teams that were bolder over the top. That is a huge point, but I just feel like I have to ask, as somebody who's who follows the Bulls closely, how excited are you about the possibility of getting Kendrick Perkins and having him play minutes over Miritich? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think uh, he and Kirk Henrich should both clearly be in the closing lineup for them. Perkins actually, if the Bulls didn't already have four players who were better than him in the front court, he's actually not been that bad this year. His, his plus minus has been pretty good. He's been a lot more spry athletically than he really was at any point in the last two or three years to where, you know, he can actually make like shots around the basket without taking 25 seconds to load up. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm hoping it goes elsewhere. We'll, we'll say that it's already bad enough that Thibodeau is probably going to play Heinrich way too much over Snell, who's been awesome. And some of the other guys that they have, Mike Dunleavy, you know, if Kirk Heinrich ever closes a game over Snell or Dunleavy, I'm going to be pretty upset. But, uh, you know, that's my, my ranting about the Bulls player usage can easily fill up another podcast, which we will record not for public consumption. Are there any guys, I know it's really early, but we already had Amare do his thing. Are there any guys that you've thought about already as potential buyout candidates that could swing, you know, swing a higher end series? No one, I think, who's been specifically talked about yet. I think the Clippers are a little disappointed that Prince got traded instead of getting bought out because they were probably going to zero in on him. You know, I, I haven't had that much chance to think about it. I mean, we've had some guys talked about today, but nobody who I, who I think is that sexy. It is worth noting, though, that for buyout guys, at least in terms of money, the Heat have a Josh McRoberts uh, injury exception, which is $2.6 million. Uh, they are only $1.1 million shy of the luxury tax, but they can still use all of that $1.1 million th- uh, of the disabled player exception to sign a guy, whereas other teams who are over the cap and don't have exceptions will only be able to offer the prorated veterans minimum, which you know will be for one-third of the minimum salary. So the Heat, you know, in addition to being able to offer a lot of playing time with having no bench, also are going to have more financial ammunition than pretty much any team that's going to really be in the buyout market, unless you want to count the Hawks. But they have enough depth that I don't think they're going to be mining that too heavily. That's a great point with Miami because yeah, they have the combination of playing time and also they have the benefit of being a place that a guy a guy wouldn't want to wouldn't mind spending two months of his time. You know, it's not they're doing that's not not a bad sentence. So yeah, I think Perkins will be notable. I feel like he's going to end up with the Clippers just because. 
and that would be useful place for him. I think that that would make them a deeper team. I don't think you play him with DeAndre ever, but he's a nice little addition. And I feel like we're going to have some, because the Western Conference playoff picture is pretty much set. And, you know, I don't know, I don't think we're going to see any multi-year buyouts. You know, I don't think we're going to see like JaVale McGee or somebody like that. But I'm I'm excited to see what those moves are because some of the teams that stayed stagnant might be making some moves then. No, I think JaVale will probably get bought out. You do? I mean, I, as somebody Yeah, with, who, with his... Uh, why do you think he won't be? I don't know. It seems like it seems like it would be misusing an asset to buy him out. I mean, there's a possibility that you could do something with him, you know, that you could revitalize his value as, as long as he doesn't corrupt Joel Embiid and Nerlens Noel. Yeah, I mean, but when you say revitalize his value... I don't think anybody's going to trade something for him when he's making eleven million. I mean, that's true. You could you can revitalize him up to like you know a six million dollar player, but not an eleven million dollar player. And then when you look at his uh, well known perception, at least of having some attitude problems, you know, I, I I my prediction would be that they buy him. I don't have any inside info on that, but I I would expect that to happen at some point this year. As you know, especially because they can save. Some money on the cap for next year as well, I would imagine. That makes sense. I, I, so, do you think that in all the fun that we had, do you think that this really moved the needle at all for this season? Yeah, that's that's the question, right? That that I was getting at a little earlier. I mean, I I, I think Oklahoma City got scarier. I don't know that they necessarily changed their median that much as a team. But I do think they changed their ceiling. If Brooks can find a way to use all these guys, keep every, everybody happy, you know, I'm I'm not that optimistic about that, frankly. But they do have a ton of flexibility now. I mean, if they want to go small, they can put KD at the four, Ibaka at the five, and then have two quality wings, uh, at least offensively, next to Westbrook, or they can go with Augustine at the one and, and Westbrook at the two, because Augustine can play off the ball and can shoot. You know, they can go with Cantor now posting up with, with Ibaka shooting threes, you know, and he can he can abuse guys down low. They can go with a great defensive lineup with Adams and Ibaka and still have shooting in a guy with a guy like Singler or, or Morrow or and someone who can move the ball a little bit and is a smart player in, in Singler, which they needed. So they have a ton of different options. It's just going to be selecting the right one, and then still the wing defense is always going to be a weakness unless they play Robertson, and he's going to be probably unplayable offensively in the in the playoffs. So I don't know. What do you think? Are, are they? What do you? Have they gotten a lot better here or no? I don't think they've gotten a lot better, but I agree with you that they've they've increased. Yeah, if you want to think about it in terms of a bell curve, I think they've widened the bell curve. I think that so there's some real big negatives with a guy like you know can the possibility of Canner and Waiters and all that, but they have some versatile versatility now. And one lineup, I'm not saying they should start it. I'm not saying they should finish it. That I would just like to see is Westbrook, Morrow, Singler, Durant, Ibaka. Just stretch, just go offensive terror. But you have is some interesting pieces there. I would just be excited to see it, just to see how it would work. The other one that could move the needle for me is the possibility that KJ McDaniels does something for the Rockets. I think it's actually more likely that he doesn't really play that much this year. You know, he's down to 30% on threes uh, while he 
is really athletic. You know, it's the rare rookie who really executes that well defensively. Maybe he's one of them since Philly actually was a quality defense this year. But, you know, he's got a lot of guys in front of him. Ariza, he's got Brewer in front of him. You know, Papa Nicolau is maybe someone that he could jump in the rotation. But he's going to have a lot of competition for minutes. I think it's more of a future upside play. You know, maybe maybe he, he turns out. But I, I don't see him playing more than a maximum of, like, a few minutes a game once we get around to the playoffs. So, you know, I thought that at first, but then I really looked at what his stats are over the course of the year. And I think he's just not a good enough three point shooter to where he's someone who's going to make a difference for them this year. It's more of a future thing. Oh, and the other two guys that'll matter are a and Amare, but Amare is not a deadline guy. Yeah. You know, I, I think actually now at this point that, Dallas might be the worst West playoff team, and they certainly didn't look too great tonight against Oklahoma City, but I just don't have much faith in their ability to stop anybody uh, with Dirk playing the four for big minutes, and, and then Amari, at you know he's going to be playing backup center. That's not going to help things either. I mean, it will be nice. They can get back to being as good as they were offensively, hopefully when they're back when they had right with the second unit, but I, I don't think that Dallas is probably the first team that I would want to play out of any of the West playoff teams right now. What about Portland with a flaw? Do you think that'll matter much? It's always tough to tell with these these situations. Right? I mean, who's he replacing? He's, you know, he's replacing minutes from Darrell Wright. He's replacing you know minutes from Will Barton. I mean, it is nice that he can shoot threes. They can go small a lot better now, although Aldridge doesn't like playing the five. Maybe in a backup role, he, he'd be okay with it. But yeah, just bring in another guy who can guard both wing positions reasonably well, shoot threes pretty well, uh, you know, at least over the course of his career, although not this year. I, I, I think any backup player to say that they move the needle is difficult, but Portland has been one of the top four teams in the West, and I think they've they've at least eliminated a way in which they can be taken advantage of. I would be surprised if we looked back on a... Portland being successful and said, oh, my God, I can't believe they got Aaron Afala for a first-round pick. That's what did it for them. But it's a quality it's a quality acquisition. That's all I can say. If not, it doesn't make me feel, you know, that Portland is now going to be threatening Golden State. I still think that they are, you know, fourth or fifth best team in the West. But it's a good move. Yeah, I'd say that class does it well. Are there any other thoughts you want to share with listeners? Uh, well, let's see. So is, is there anyone else who potentially might have their needle moved. Uh, Ray, Ray Allen, in the but that playoffs. wasn't today. <laughs> yeah, I guess Portland was the only other real contender aside from Oklahoma City that made a move. I mean, I guess, you know, Miami obviously is the other one, but we, we talked about them. Uh, you know, they're certainly a, a very scary potential upset pick now in the East playoffs. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that's uh, that about wraps it up for me. I, I think... Oklahoma City did get scarier for Golden State in the first round, that's for sure. Oh, here's a question. Who do you think gets the last playoff spot in the East? Well, so we're going to assume Miami is seven. That leaves Brooklyn. It leaves Detroit. Charlotte. Indiana. And Charlotte? Yep. Is, is that, am I missing anybody? Yeah, I have it as Charlotte, Brooklyn, Boston, Detroit, Indiana. Okay, I'm not, I'm not taking Boston particularly seriously. You know, I think it could still be Indiana. 
uh, especially if we see Paul George come back. Maybe they can make a little run. I mean, they're, those teams are pretty much all very similar records at this point. Uh, so I think a lot of it's just going to depend on schedule. And you know what? I'll, I'll go with Indiana. Yeah, and they also got George Hill, which is a huge help. Yeah, I mean, they've played much better since he has returned. And if they can get back with, with Paul George as well, you know, maybe they're almost as good as they were down the end of last year. Uh, you know, uh, obviously George isn't going to be the same guy, so that, that might be a bit hyperbolic. Never mind. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, maybe they can be playing at like a 45-win team level, uh, especially with their defense coming down the stretch, and that might be enough for them. Yeah, I think that might be enough. Well, thank you so much for taking time. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again to Nate Duncan. You can read him at Basketball Insiders. He's one of my favorite writers. And you can also follow him on Twitter at NateDuncanNBA. He's a great follow if you don't follow him already. Most of my listeners probably do. It was great having him, and as we talked about, it was one of those deadlines that it was really exciting, but it, other than Oklahoma City and Miami, who are both going to be probably 7-8 seeds if they make it, aren't going to be those major contenders. Aflalo is probably the best chance of doing something on a team that is going to play in a deeper round, though I think Miami has a decent shot at it. But it was still a lot of fun, and what I liked about it was that it also shifted some long-term things. You saw some young players like Brandon Knight, Michael Carter-Williams, Isaiah Thomas. Those guys have a very decent chance of being on their new teams for a long time, and that's exciting because that shifts the structure of the league, and those moves, a lot of them were by teams that are also pretty good. I mean, Milwaukee's going to be in the playoffs. Phoenix has a shot still, though I don't expect it because of the Dragons trade. So it was a great deadline. I enjoyed doing it. I thank Nate again for coming on. You will also see a podcast I recorded with Dan Feldman also after the deadline. We were talking mostly about the Pistons, but we hit on the deadline as well. That will come out in the next few days. And as always, I love your input. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, or you can email me, daniel.larue at realgm.com. I read everything that you send. I respond to as much as I can, and I really do appreciate it. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything.